Part three, chapter three of Bonaventure, a prose pastoral of Acadian Louisiana. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Bonaventure, a prose pastoral of Acadian Louisiana by George W. Cable. Part three, chapter three, the tavern fireside. I call to mind a certain wild, dark night in November. St-Pierre lay under his palmetto thatch in the forest behind Grand Point, and could not sleep for listening to the wind and wondering where his son was in that wild Texas norther. On the Mississippi, a steamer, upward bound, that had whistled to land at Belmont or Belle Alliance Plantation, seemed to be staying there, afraid to venture away. Miles southward, beyond the river and the lands on that side, Lake des Almondes was combing with the tempest and hissing with the rain. Still farther away, on the little bayou and at the railway station in the edge of the swamp that we already know, and westward over the prairie where Claude had vanished into the world, all life was hidden and mute. And farther still, leagues and leagues away, the mad tempest was riding the whitecaps in Berwick's Bay and Grand Lake. And yet beyond, beyond New Iberia, and up by Carancro, and around again by St. Martinville, Bro Bridge, Grand Coteau, and Opelousa, and down once more across the prairies of Vermilion, the marshes about Côte Blanche Bay, and the islands in the Gulf, it came bounding, screaming, and buffeting, and all the way across that open sweep from Mermanteau to Côte-Gelet, it was tearing the rain to mist and freezing it wherever it fell, only lulling and warming a little about Joseph Jefferson's island, as if that prank were too mean a trick to play upon his orange groves. In Vermilionville the wind came around every corner, piercing and pinching to the bone. The walking was slippery, and though it was still early bedtime and the ruddy lamplight filled the wet panes of some window every here and there, scarce a soul was stirring without, on horse or afoot, to be guided by its kindly glow. At the corner of two streets, quite away from the courthouse square, a white-framed tavern with a wooden Greek porch filling its whole two-story front, and a balcony built within the porch at the second-story windows in oddest fashion, was glowing with hospitable firelight. It was not nearly the largest inn of the place, nor the oldest, nor the newest, nor the most accessible. There was no clink of glass there, yet in this only third year of its present management it was the place where those who knew best always put up. Around the waiting-room fire this evening sat a goodly semicircle of men, commercial travellers. Some of them were quite dry and comfortable, and wore an air of superior fortune over others whose shoes and lower garments sent out more or less steam and odour toward the open fireplace. Several were smoking. One who neither smoked nor steamed stood with his back to the fire and the skirts of his coat lifted forward on his wrists. He was a rather short, slight, nervy man, about thirty years of age, 
with a wide pink baldness running so far back from his prominent temples and forehead that when he tipped his face toward the blue joists overhead, enjoying the fatigue of a well-filled day, his polished skull sent back the firelight brilliantly. There was a light skirmish of conversation going on in which he took no part. No one seemed really acquainted with another. Presently a man sitting next on the left of him put away a quill toothpick in his watch-pocket, looked up into the face of the standing man, and said with a faint smile, "'That job's done.' With friendly gravity the other looked down and replied, "'I never use a quill toothpick.' "'Yes,' said the one who sat, "'it's bad. Still, I do it.' "'Nothing,' continued the other, "'Nothing harder than a sharpened white pine match "'should ever go between the teeth. "'Brush thoroughly, but not violently, "'once or twice daily, "'with a moderately stiff brush dipped in soft water, "'into which has been dropped a few drops "'of the tincture of myrrh. "'A brush of badger's hair is best. "'If tartar accumulates, have it removed by a dentist. "'Do not bite thread or crack nuts with the teeth.' or use the teeth for other purposes than those for which nature designed them. He bent toward his hearer with a smile of irresistible sweetness, drew his lips away from his gums, snapped his teeth together loudly twice or thrice, and smiled again modestly. The other man sought defense in buoyancy of manner. "'Right you are,' he chirruped. He reached up to his adviser's blue and crimson neck-scarf, and laid his finger and thumb upon a large, solitary, pear-shaped pearl. "'You're like me. You believe in the real thing.' "'I do,' said the pearl's owner, "'and I like people that like the real thing. A pearl of the first water is real. There's no sham there, no deception, except the iridescence, which is, as you doubtless know, an optical illusion attributable to the intervention of rays of light reflected from microscopic corrugations of the nacreous surface. But for that our eye is to blame, not the pearl. See? The seated man did not reply, but another man on the speaker's right, a large man, widest at the waist, leaned across the arm of his chair to scrutinize the jewel. Its owner turned his throat for the inspection, despite a certain grumness and crocodilian aggressiveness in the man's interest. "'I like a diamond myself,' said the new onlooker, dropped back in his chair, and met the eyes of the pearl's owner with a heavy glance. "'Tastes differ,' kindly responded the wearer of the pearl, "'Are you acquainted with the language of gems?' The big-waisted man gave a negative grunt and spat bravely into the fire. "'Didn't know gems could talk,' he said. "'They do not talk, they speak,' responded their serene interpreter. The company in general noticed that with all his amiability of tone and manner, his mild eyes held the big-waisted man with an uncomfortable steadiness. They speak not to the ear, but to the eye, and to the thought. Thought is deeper than all speech, feeling deeper than all thought. Souls to souls can never teach what unto themselves was taught. The speaker's victim writhed, but the riveted gaze and uplifted finger pinioned him. You should know, 
every one should know the language of gems there is a language of flowers to me the meanest flower that blows can give thoughts that do often lie too deep for tears but the language of gems is as much more important than that of flowers as the imperishable gem itself is much more enduring than the withering the evanescent blossom a gentleman may not with safety present to a lady a gem of whose accompanying sentiment he is ignorant but with the language of gems understood between them how could a sentiment be more exquisitely or more acceptably expressed than by the gift of a costly gem uttering that sentiment with an unspoken eloquence did you but know the language of gems your choice would not be the diamond diamond mean no diamonds emblems of pride pride in their port defiance in their eyes i see the lords of humankind pass by your choice would have been the pearl symbol of modest loveliness full many a gem of purest ray serene the dark unfathomed caves of ocean bear orient pearls at random strung fold little trembler thy fluttering wing freely partake of love's fathomless spring so hallowed thy presence the spirit within hath whispered the angels protect thee from sin the speaker ceased with his glance hovering caressingly over the little trembler with fluttering wing that is the big-waisted man the company sat in listening expectancy and the big-waisted man whose eyes had long ago sought refuge in the fire, lifted them and said satirically, "'Go on,' at the same time trying to buy his way out with a smile. "'It's your turn,' quickly responded the jewel's owner, with something droll in his manner that made the company laugh at the other's expense. The big-waisted man kindled, then smiled again and said, was that emblem of modest loveliness give to you symbolically or did you present it to yourself i took it for a debt replied the wearer bowing joyously ah said the other well i suppose it was either that or her furniture thanks yes there was a pause and then the pearl's owner spoke on strange fact that was years ago and yet he fondled his gem with thumb and finger and tender glance. "'You're the first man I've met to whom I could sincerely and symbolically present it. And you don't want it. I'm sorry.' "'I see,' said the big-waisted man, glaring at him. "'So do I,' responded the pearl's owner. A smile went round, and the company sat looking into the fire. Outside the wind growled and scolded, shook and slapped the house, and thrashed it with the rain. A man sitting against the chimney said, "'If this storm keeps on six hours longer, I reduce my estimate of the cotton crop sixty-five thousand bales.' But no one responded, and as the importance died out of his face, he dropped his gaze into the fire with a pretense of deep meditation." Presently another, a good-looking young fellow, said, "'Well, gents, I never cared much for jewellery, but I like a nice scarf-pin. It's knobby, and I like a handsome seal-ring.' He drew one from a rather chubby finger and passed it to his next neighbour, 
following it with his eyes and adding, that's said to be a real intaglio. But now one thing I don't like, that's to see a lady wear a quantity of diamond rings outside of her glove and heavy gold chains and... He was interrupted. A long man with legs stiffened out to the fire lifted a cigar between two fingers, sent a soft jet of smoke into the air, and began monotonously, Chains on a southern woman? Chains? I know the lady that wrote that piece. He suddenly gathered himself up for some large effort. I can't recite it as she used to, but... And to the joy of all, he was interrupted. Gentlemen, said one, throwing a cigarette stump into the fire, that brings up the subject of the war. By the by, do you know what that war cost the government of the United States? He glanced from one to another until his eye reached the wearer of the pearl, who had faced about and stood now with the jewel glistening in the firelight, and who promptly said, Yes, how much? Well, said the first questioner with sudden caution, I may be mistaken, but I've heard that it cost six, I think they say six, billion dollars, didn't it? It did, replied the other with a smile of friendly commendation. It cost six billion, one hundred and eighty-nine million, nine hundred and twenty-nine thousand, nine hundred and eight dollars. The largest item is interest, one billion seven hundred and one million two hundred and fifty-six thousand one hundred and ninety-eight dollars forty-two cents. The next largest, the pay of troops. The next, clothing the army. If there's any item of the war's expenses you would like to know, ask me. Capturing President Confederate States, ninety-seven thousand and thirty-one dollars three cents. The speaker's manner grew almost gay. The other smiled defensively and responded, "'You've got a good memory for statistics.' "'I haven't, and yet I always did like statistics. I'm no statistician, and yet if I had the time, statistics would be my favorite study. I suppose it's yours?' The wearer of the pearl shook his head. "'No, but I like it. I like the style of mind that likes it.' The two bowed with playful graciousness to each other. Yes, I do, and I've studied it some little. I can tell you the best time of every celebrated trotter in this country, the quickest trip a steamer ever made between Queenstown and New York, New York and Queenstown, New Orleans and New York, the greatest speed ever made on a railroad or by a yacht, pedestrian, carrier pigeon, or defaulting cashier the rate of postage to every foreign country, the excess of women over men in every state of the Union so afflicted, or blessed, according to how you look at it, the number of volumes in each of the world's ten largest libraries, the salary of every officer of the United States government, the average duration of life in a man, elephant, lion, horse, anaconda, tortoise, camel, rabbit, ass, etc., etc., the age of every crowned head in Europe, each state's legal and commercial rate of interest, and how long it takes a healthy boy to digest apples, baked beans, cabbage, dates, eggs, fish, green corn, H-I-J-K-L-M-N-O-P, quinces, rice, shrimps, tripe, 
veal, yams, and anything you can cook commencing with Z. It's a fascinating study, but it's not my favorite. The proper study of mankind is man, sole judge of truth in endless error hurled, the glory, jest, and riddle of the world. I love to study human nature. That's my favorite study. The art of reading the inner human nature by the outer aspect is of immeasurable interest and boundless practical value, and the man who can practice it skillfully and apply it sagaciously is on the high road to fortune. And why? Because to know it thoroughly is to know whom to trust and how far. To select wisely a friend, a confidant, a partner in any enterprise, to shun the untrustworthy, to anticipate and turn to our personal advantage the merits, faults, and deficiencies of all, and to evolve from their character such practical results as we may choose for our own ends. But a thorough knowledge is attained only by incessant observation and long practice. Like music, it demands a special talent possessed by different individuals in variable quantity, or not at all. You gentlemen all are, what I am not, commercial tourists. Before you I must be modest. You, each of you, have been chosen from surrounding hundreds or thousands for your superior ability, natural or acquired, to scan the human face and form, and know whereof you see. I look you in the eye, you look me in the eye, for the eye, though it does not tell all, tells much. It is the key of character. It has been called the mirror of the soul. And looks commencing with the skies, thy rapt soul sitting in thine eyes. And so looking you read me. You say to yourself, There's a man with no concealments, yet who speaks not till he's spoken to, knows when to stop, and stops. You note my pale eyebrows, my slightly prominent and pointed chin, somewhat oversized mouth, small, well-spread ears, faintly aquiline nose, fine, thin, blonde hair, a depression in the skull where the bump of self-conceit ought to be, and you say, a man that knows his talents without being vain of them, who not only minds his own business, but loves it, and who in that business, be it buggy whips, or be it washing, or be it something far nobler, which, let me say modestly, it is, simply goes to the head of the class and stays there. Yes, sirs, if I say that reading the human countenance is one of my accomplishments, I am diffidently mindful that in this company I myself am read, perused, no other probably so well read, I mean so exhaustively perused. For there is one thing about me, gentlemen, if you'll allow me to say it, I'm short meter, large print, and open to the public seven days in the week. And yet you probably all make one mistake about me. You take me for the alumni of some university. Not so. I'm a self-made man. I made myself. And considering that I'm the first man I ever made, I think, pardon the seeming egotism, I think I've done well. A few years ago there dwelt in humble obscurity among the granite hills of New England, earning his bread by the sweat of his brow upon his father's farm, a youth to fortune and to fame unknown. But one day a voice within him said, 
Tarbox? G.W., namesake of the man who never told a lie. Do you want to succeed in life? Then leave the production of tobacco and cider to unambitious age, and find that business wherein you can always give a man ten times as much for his dollar as his dollar is worth. The meaning was plain, and from that time forth young Tarbox aspired to become a book agent. T'was not long ere he, like young Harry Bluff, left his friends and his home, and his dear native land, or the wide world to roam. Books became his line, and full soon he was the head of the line. And why? Was it because in the first short twelve months of his career he sold, delivered, and got the money for five thousand one hundred and seven copies of Mend Me at Home? No. Was it then because three years later he sold in one year, with no other assistance than a man to drive the horse and wagon, hold the blackboard, and hand out the books, ten thousand and three copies of Rapid Arithmetic? It was not. Was it then because in 1878, reading aright the public mind, he said to his publishers, whose confidence in him was unbounded, It ain't mend me at home the people want most, nor rapid arithmetic, nor heal thyself, nor I meet the emergency, nor the bouquet of poetry and song. What they want is all these in one. Abridged, said the publishers. Enlarged, said young Tarbox, enlarged and copiously illustrated, complete in one volume. Price, cloth, three dollars, sheep, four, half morocco, gilt edges, five, real value to the subscriber, two hundred and fifty. Title, The Album of Universal Information. Author, G. W. Tarbox. Editor, G. W. T. Agent for the United States, the Canadas, and Mexico, G. W. Tarbox, that is to say, myself. That gentleman is the reason I stand at the head of my line, not merely because on every copy sold I make an author's as well as a solicitor's margin, but because, being the author, I know whereof I sell. A man that's got my book has got a college education, and when a man taps me, for a gentleman I never spout until I'm tapped, and information bursts from me like water from a street hydrant, and he comes to find out that everything I tell is in that wonderful book, and that everything that is in that wonderful book I can tell, he wants to own a copy. And when I tell him I can't spare my sample copy, but I'll take his subscription, he smiles gratefully. A cold wet blast rushing into the room from the hall betrayed the opening of the front door. The door was shut again, and a well-formed, muscular young man who had entered stood in the parlor doorway, lifting his hat from his head, shaking the rain from it, and looking at it with amused diffidence. Mr. Tarbox turned about once more with his back to the fire, gave the figure a quick glance of scrutiny, then a second and longer one, and then dropped his eyes to the floor. The big-waisted man shifted his chair, tipped it back, and said, "'He smiles gratefully, you say?' "'Yes.' "'And subscribes?' "'If he's got any sense,' Mr. Tarbox replied in a preoccupied tone. His eyes were on the young man who still stood in the door. 
This person must have reached the house in some covered conveyance. Even his boot-tops were dry, or nearly so. He was rather pleasing to see, of good stature, his clothing cheap. A dark blue flannel sack of the ready-made sort hung on him not too well. Light as the garment was, he showed no sign that he felt the penetrating cold out of which he had just come. His throat and beardless face had the good brown of outdoor life. His broad chest strained the two buttons of his sack. His head was well poised, his feet were shapely, and but for somewhat too much roundness about the shoulder-blades, noticeable in the side-view, as he carefully stood a long, queer package that was not buggy-whips against the hat-rack, it would have been fair to pronounce him an athlete. The eyes of the fireside group were turned toward him, but not upon him. They rested on a girl of sixteen who had come down the hall and was standing before the newcomer just beyond the door. The registry book was just there on a desk in the hall. She stood with a freshly dipped pen in her hand, ignoring the gaze from the fireside with a faintly overdone calmness of face. The new guest came forward, and, in a manner that showed slender acquaintance with the operation, slowly registered his name and address. He did it with such painstaking that, upside down as the writing was, she read it as he wrote. As the Christian name appeared, her perfunctory glance became attention. As the surname followed, the attention became interest and recognition, and as the address was added, Mr. Tarbox detected pleasure dancing behind the long fringe of her discreet eyes, and marked their stolen glance of quick inspection upon the short dark locks and strong young form still bent over the last strokes of the writing. But when he straightened up, carefully shut the book, and fixed his brown eyes upon hers in guileless expectation of instructions, he saw nothing to indicate that he was not the entire stranger that she was to him. "'You done had supper?' she asked. The uncommon kindness of such a question at such an hour of a tavern's evening was lost on the young man's obvious inexperience, and as one schooled to the haphazard of forest and field, he merely replied, "'No, nah, I didn't had any.' The girl turned, what a wealth of black hair she had, and disappeared as she moved away along the hall. Her voice was heard, Mamma. Then there was the silence of an unheard consultation. The young man moved a step or two into the parlor, and returned toward the door as a light double footfall approached again down the hall, and the girl appeared once more, somewhat preceded by a small, tired-looking, pretty woman some thirty-five years of age, of slow, self-contained movement and clear, meditative eyes. But the guest, too, had been reinforced. A man had come silently from the fireside, taken his hand, and now near the doorway was softly shaking it and smiling. Surprise, pleasure, and reverential regard were mingled in the young man's face, and his open mouth was gasping, Mr. Tarbox! Claude St-Pierre, after six years, I'm glad to see you. Madame, take good care of Claude. No fear but she will, my boy. If anybody in Louisiana knows how to take care of a traveller, it's Madame Beausoleil. 
He smiled for all. The daughter's large black eyes danced, but the mother asked Claude with unmoved countenance and soft tone, "'You are Claude Saint-Pierre from Grand Point? "'Yes. "'Das lately since you left yonder? "'About two months. "'Bonaventure Deschamps. "'He was well?' "'Yes.' Claude's eyes were full of a glad surprise, and asked a question that his lips did not dare to venture upon. Madame Beausoleil read it, and she said, "'We was raised together, Bonaventure and me.' She waved her hand toward her daughter. "'He teach her to read. Sit down to the fire. We make you some supper.'" End of Part 3, Chapter 3